everyone. Welcome to this episode of Betfolio Voice, sponsored by Decra, where I'm joined by Dr. Kershid Mama to discuss tips on selecting a sedative. You'll hear us reference it several times throughout the episode, but recently I was fortunate enough to take Dr. Mama's anesthesia course at the NAVC Institute, and guys, it was amazing. And once again, I have the good fortune of being able to pick Dr. Mama's brain about her approach to sedation and anesthesia. I hope I'm not putting words in her mouth when I say she does a wonderful job of not allowing perfect to be the enemy of good. She really made me feel confident that I could still practice good medicine even if I don't follow the perfect textbook approach to every case. Our recent time together has gone a long way in boosting my anesthesia knowledge and confidence, and she brings much of that to our talk here today. Dr. Mama received her DVM in 1989 from Washington State University and completed a large animal rotating internship at the University of Guelph. This, along with her experiences during her senior year in veterinary school, confirmed a passion for anesthesia. She pursued an anesthesia and critical care residency at the University of California, Davis, and following its completion in 1993, chose to stay and work at UC Davis for three years before moving to Colorado State University, where she's been a faculty member since 1996. She enjoys managing a diverse variety of species while also teaching DVM and graduate students, and has pursued research interests directed at improving patient care and safety. She feels fortunate that as part of her job, she's had the opportunity to advance anesthesia and pain management through continuing education for veterinarians in many different venues, both nationally and internationally. I had such a great time talking to her, learned so much. Let's go ahead and get into our talk. I am joined today on the podcast by Dr. Mama from Colorado State University and Let me tell you guys, I just took her institute course, probably one of the best continuing education experiences I have ever had, so well organized, and I learned a lot, and I'm so excited, Dr. Mama, that you're joining us to talk to all of our listeners, because one of the biggest things I really enjoyed about taking your course was I felt like you gave us very practical, very usable information that we could immediately take back and it, and help our patients using that information. So I'm happy to bring that to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for having me, Dr. Fleming. I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So let's start with sedation before our patient ever even arrives at the hospital, because we know sometimes just getting them in the door can be a challenge. What are your thoughts on administering some sort of sedative or anxiolytic at home prior to arrival at the hospital? Yeah, great question. And surely when patients present for anesthesia, we are more than happy to do that. I think the important part is that one has a client owner of patient relationship before one goes ahead and and offers that option. So you know the client, you know what they're capable of, you know that if the animal becomes overly sedate or, or et cetera, or vomits, that they may not have too many concerns about it, or at least you can have that conversation. So I think there are some good options now for both dogs and cats to sedate them prior to bringing them into the hospital. And Along those lines, that's something I always get a little bit curious about if I do send home gabapentin and trazodone or or something along those lines is a lot of times if I'm having people administer it in order to bring their pet to the hospital, I'm 
having them do it the night before and then a few hours before their visit. And one of my concerns always is like, what if this pet gets really, really sedate and this person's panicking and now we're closed and and they can't get a hold of us? Is that something that you feel like needs to be a concern? Is that something we see commonly? Yeah, I think it depends on the drug. So most commonly today, it seems that both gabapentin for cats and trazodone more in dogs are the ones that people go to. And neither of those seem to cause unduly heavy sedation. I do think sometimes cats will get a little ataxic and we want that side effect of sedation in them, right? That's why we're giving it to them. Typically for us, we have them give it in the morning before they're coming in or a couple hours before they're coming in so that if they do become sedate, we have the opportunity to intervene if we need to or if the owner has concerns. Some people do like to give gabapentin the night before and the morning of, And I think that's fine too. The night, usually they sleep through the night and nobody seems too concerned. It's when everybody's awake that it gets noticed more typically. Sure, that makes sense. Do any of those drugs or, you know, any other drugs that we might be sending home for sedation prior to arrival interfere with our sedation or anesthetic protocols? Yeah, another great question. I don't know that they interfere. There are some ongoing studies to see if drugs like trazodone might enhance or limit hypotension during anesthesia. And if you add drugs like aspromazine onto trazodone, does that cause enhanced hypotension or low blood pressure, for example? Those are some of the ongoing works that are happening so that that we will know the answer to that. Most commonly, what I like to do is look at the animal when it comes in on the sedatives and see what it looks like and then adjust my doses of of subsequent drugs based on that. So if they're really quiet and maybe the night before when I saw it or the day before when I saw it, it wasn't that quiet and I had a different idea of how much drug I needed and then I see it in the morning and I go, oh no, we could get away with less then I would just adjust it that way. So more so like an adjustment in our dosage rather than the actual drug interference. Yeah, I don't know that we know any drug interference, but I think the synergy of another sedative with sedatives we might use for premedication or induction of anesthesia drugs could be something to adjust. Sure. And I know I just took you down a whole different path. Those are like my own personal questions that I just was came to happy me. Happy to. <laughs> One sedation protocol we hear prior to arrival at the hospital is the chill protocol. And for some reason in my head, this was gabapentin, trazodone, and acepromazine. I think I can't remember. But uh, it turns out I was completely wrong. And it's gabapentin, melatonin, and acepromazine. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, Dr. Alicia Karras at Tufts actually came up with this protocol. And then I think Herself, a resident in anesthesia and a behaviorist, wrote a little article on it. And what they describe is using gabapentin the night before. So this time it is given the night before about 20 to 25 milligrams per kilo. And then another similar dose in the morning before the vet visit. And at that time, they usually recommend a fixed dose of melatonin with it. And then right before coming into the vet clinic, about 30 minutes to an hour prior to leaving home, they give 
oral acepromazine, and this isn't oral tablet acepromazine, but the injectable formulation that's administered in the mouth, so it's orally absorbed or transmucosally absorbed is the intent. And they report that the animals come in quieter. It's usually dogs come in quieter. And if they are really fractious or et cetera, that it allows them to then follow up with an intramuscular injection with less stress for everybody. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that because it's not just the drugs themselves that we're thinking about here, but the the timing and administration of how we're giving them. Yeah, that seems to be a very important part for their protocol. They state that in the article. And when I've talked with them, that that seems to be a key. We tend to use less of that perhaps than we do just trazodone or gabapentin, but we have been using it more in some of the fractious dogs, along with some other things that, that are available out there. Sure, sure. So that kind of gets them into the hospital and hopefully, you know, maybe if, if we're in general practice, that's all we need is just to get them in the door and do an exam or, you know, something minor. But what if that's not the case? Let's talk about who we should sedate or which animals we should sedate. Are there patients who we are wrestling with and maybe we shouldn't and we should consider sedation where we're not using it often enough? Or on the contrary, are there patients that we are sedating that maybe we should be a little more careful with and and try some of these at-home techniques? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's always hard. And I think that's why knowing the dog or the cat and the client is really helpful, right? I mean, then that way you can make a better decision. I feel like when we get an animal in the hospital and it's worked up and we may try something injectably or orally and that animal doesn't respond favorably. I feel like we try again. And then at that point, if they're still really worked up, I prefer to send them home, say, hey, let's try something oral. Let's try a different way. And maybe then when you bring them in, we don't even bring them into the building. We work with them in the parking lot, see what they're like, see if we need to inject them out there or give them something else orally out there and then bring them in. So trying to make it a better day for everybody, because I don't think the staff or the veterinary team in general enjoy that dog that's so unhappy or the cat that's so unhappy. So where we can and it's not emergent, we would try to do that send them home and come back in. There are exceptions, obviously, to people's schedules, et cetera, where you might not be able to do that. As far as who not to sedate, that, that I think is a, a bigger can of worms. I, I think for me, I don't necessarily like to sedate brachycephalics unless I have all the things I might need to manage them. So I wouldn't necessarily want an owner to sedate a brachycephalic at home if they lost airway control or couldn't thermoregulate because they couldn't pant. That would have me concerned. So depending on the drug one sends home, that's something to consider as far as management. Similarly, there are dogs with, you know, severe cardiac disease or respiratory disease. I probably wouldn't heavily sedate them unless we were in a controlled environment and then make a decision as to which way to go. If you know something's got hypotension, you know, that would be another consideration. If vomiting's contraindicated, that might be another consideration. So 
there's ways to manage all of that, but broadly the drugs we give may cause some of those effects. So those are some patients where I'd be a little more cautious, especially at home. And I love that you brought up brachycephalics and thermoregulation and airway control, because a lot of times, I agree with you, I'm, I'm right there with you, I don't want to sedate really or anesthetize them either if I don't have to. But, you know, sometimes we have reasons that we just have to have them chemically restrained, so to speak. And we'll have owners who say, well, why do you have to put them under anesthesia? Why can't you just sedate them? And sometimes there is this perception that sedation is going to be safer than anesthesia. So what are what are your thoughts on sedation versus general anesthesia? Yeah, tough one. I, I know there are reasons to sedate. And of course, I do anesthesia. So I feel a different comfort level with it. But In general, the drugs that we use to heavily sedate patients have cardiovascular and respiratory side effects. If you need mild sedation, I think that's fine. You can do that. But if you really want to get something done, maybe an OFA film or you need to do a bandage change on a painful limb, et cetera, then the sedation you need for that can be pretty heavy. And those drugs I worry more about loss of airway control in in those breeds. Now, does it happen always? No, it doesn't. We do sedate some of those dogs heavily. But the nice thing here is we also set up the anesthesia machine, have drugs, have an IV catheter, have endotracheal tubes, so that should that dog obstruct their airway, we can manage it right away. And when I sedate brachycephalics, even if it's prior to anesthesia, I like to have them watched the entire time. I don't like to leave them in a cage after giving their drugs. Even if we give them antiemetics, et cetera, before to prevent vomiting, sometimes those things happen. And then I think there's a greater risk to the patient. And we actually had an example of that at Institute where we had a patient who was very wound up yet responded very profoundly to sedatives and you know, of course, somebody was with him the whole time and able to make sure that he was safe and, and intubated. But we saw a perfect example of that just not very long ago. Yeah, I remember that dog. It it, it surprised us because yeah. he was so, so wound up. And we thought, well, we'll just hit him harder and, and, and calm him down since there's all these people. And sure enough, the next thing I knew, seven minutes later, a team had intubated him just off his pre-meds. So, yeah, that can happen. And he, he wasn't really brachycephalic. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, and he did well and he woke up beautifully and is a happy camper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I know when we have these conversations, my next question is always about drug specifics. Can you talk us through some of the options we have for sedation, our pre-medications for anesthesia and how you use those? Yeah. My brain works to categorize them. And so I usually categorize the tranquilizers or sedatives in one group. And those drugs would be acepromazine, dexmedetomidine. The benzodiazepines are a bit hit or miss on whether they truly will sedate or tranquilize our dogs and whether that's regional or whether it's in how we use them. They do have the potential to disinhibit, but they would go in that kind of grouping. And then there's a new drug that's either very soon to be released. And they've done some educational 
seminars with it is a metatomidine preparation with a peripheral antagonist in it. And that's called Zanalpha. And that's going to be another drug that fits into that classification. So those are the sedative tranquilizing drugs. I like to put the opioids in there in their own category. Opioids can be sedating in dogs, depending on the drug and the dose. They're not as profound as, say, dexmedetomidine, but, but they can be sedating. In cats, they tend to cause more euphoria or happy cats. Sometimes <laughs> um, they'll cause dysphoria or not so happy cats. And that can happen in dogs as well. The dysphoria can happen with high doses. So I like to use opioids in synergy or as adjuncts to the sedating or tranquilizing drugs, allows me to reduce the dose of the tranquilizing drugs and which have more side effects and also give them some analgesic benefit. So that's the second grouping. And then the third grouping I think of are the anesthetic drugs that might be given IM, such as alfaxalone, ketamine, both telazole, tylenamine, zolazepam, which can go IM. So if you have an animal that the tranquilizer sedative class and opioid combination isn't going to get enough sedation or they are still fighting it, then a little bit of the anesthetic drug might help. And then other times you might give those IV. So you sedate them with your primary drugs, and then you just need a little more for a very short time. And you might just titrate a little IV, try to keep them breathing, give them some oxygen and, and get them through the, the procedure. And then the last, which is not really for sedation, but has to be used occasionally are the inhaled agents, right? Very rarely now, but it used to be more common to have to either chamber or mask a fractious animal that one couldn't get hands on, but was small enough to, to do that with. So occasionally that, and for the non-domestic species, I think we see more of that. Sure, sure, absolutely. And you touched on the synergism of these drugs. And of course, we talk a lot about multimodal approaches when it comes to anesthesia. So what are some of the considerations we should keep in mind when we're creating a sedation protocol for our patient? So I like to think of what is the need? So do we need short-term or long-term? How heavy do we need to sedate the the animal? What is their awareness or arousal state? How how much do we need to sedate them because they're already worried or are they pretty calm and, and do they not? And then I think of what are the side effects of the drugs? So I need to achieve this. This is what I'm thinking about using. But oh, by the way, if I did that, would it stop breathing or would I cause really significant cardiovascular depression? Can I do that in this dog or cat or should I avoid that? That's where my head goes is what do I need and can I use the drugs I have to do it safely? So once you think of the plan, some other things to think about are whether you should consider giving the drugs intravenously or intramuscular or subcutaneously. So sometimes when we do say a cardiac echo or whatever, we might pre-treat them with something IM or even orally and see how it's going. But 
but the animal's still a little bit responsive. So you may need to touch it up a little bit. IV, it's just great if you have a catheter, you can titrate that better, but that's something to consider. The other is how fast you need it to work. People are busy in practice and, and sometimes having something intravenous and getting it done quickly is, is really important for that practice. So whether you can afford the time for IM drug or you need to give it IV is something to consider. And then one needs to adjust the dose based on that, right? So if it's IV, a lower dose typically than if it's IM or sub-Q, but you'd need a higher dose, but you have to wait longer. As a general rule, I feel like cats are tougher to sedate than dogs. But with the newer drugs, both alfaxalone and dexmedetomine, mean, not so new anymore, but being more sedating and alfaxalone perhaps having a little bit better cardiovascular safety profile, I think there are some options now for, for cats as well. Dogs, I think still we have more to choose from than in cats. Other things to think about would be, is it a painful procedure or non-painful? So do you need to include analgesic drugs in there? And I, I think those are probably the big ones. And then the last would be reversibility. So again, in a busy practice, People don't want the animal sitting around. If an owner's waiting in an exam room, maybe you needed to sedate it to get blood from it and get some radiographs, and then you want to reverse it and send it home. So reversibility may be something else to consider as far as options. Sure. And one of the things I took away from our course that I keep bringing up, because again, it was such a good one is I, I've always, I've gotten nervous periodically with like naloxone or naltrexone and not having those available because just they're not always available at every clinic. So I've gone, you know, man, what if I, what if I give this and I have an untoward effect that, that I'm not happy with and I don't have a good reversal for it. I think you made me feel a lot more comfortable as far as using naloxone or something like that in the case of dysphoria, but being able to treat some of those other side effects like bradycardia or, or hypotension with fluids, with anticholinergics and things like that, and not necessarily having to rely on having naloxone in order to keep them cardiovascularly stable. Yeah, I think, you know, naloxone is a good reversal for the opioids and, and you don't have to reverse them completely either. You can partially reverse them. So you leave some analgesia, but maybe get rid of the respiratory depression if you saw that. But yeah, there are other ways for sure. So opioids can cause bradycardia and as can alpha twos, of course, but for opioids with bradycardia, you can give an anticholinergic and get them out of the bradycardia if the bradycardia is causing say hypotension, and you think that's the root cause, then it's easy enough to treat that. If they aren't ventilating as well, but they are breathing a little bit of oxygen supplementation, we'll get them through that till they start breathing better without reversing. Um, so if you don't have reversals, you can surely support them through through a side effect, as long as you know what, what it is and understand that it's drug mediated. The other drug that um, a lot of people do have access to and can be used to sometimes partially reverse the mu opioids is butorphanol. Low doses of butorphanol will reverse the mu effects. And so that can be helpful in some cases. And also with dysphoria, sometimes it'll help an animal that's dysphoric if you give them a little butorphanol, if you don't have naloxone. Nalbufene is another drug that can be used that way. 
I'm glad that you said the butorphanol part because when you say it, it makes 100% sense. It makes great sense physiologically, but the idea of giving more opioid to contradict opioid effects would not pop into my head in that moment where I'm kind of, you know, my adrenaline is going and I'm going, all right, how am I going to treat this dog? But but that absolutely makes sense considering how butorphanol works on the mu and the kappa receptors. Yeah, it's a good option for people who don't have naloxone. And, you know, with the opioid crisis in, in humans now, I think naloxone has been harder to get occasionally. So so that is something to keep in mind. And now bufine again, another drug that's similar and might be a better reversal. Absolutely. So let's talk about something else that recently just kind of blew my mind. And I still like, I still need to hear you say it out loud that it's okay to do this. But we talked about combining acepromazine and dexmedetomidine. And I feel like I was always taught, don't put these drugs together. They do opposite things. It's not a good idea. But I understand that more recent data is saying maybe these can be used together and actually kind of spare the negative side effects and be very effective. Yeah, I think lots of work still happening on that. It comes from the horse side. In horses, that's been done actually quite a while, even though label and bottle doses tell you not to. And I think many of us were taught not to. ACE is a vasodilating drug, acepromazine, and the alpha-2s, whichever one you choose, they cause vasoconstriction and secondary bradycardia. Right. So you got bradycardia affecting cardiac output and vasodilation affecting cardiac output. So why do you put the two together? <laughs> and the thought process is that with the potent alpha vasoconstricting drugs that cause the bradycardia, perhaps if you use a low dose of acepromazine in the background, which prevents the hypertensive phase, you may mitigate some of the peripherally caused bradycardia you won't mitigate the centrally caused bradycardia. So these drugs are sedatives. They also decrease norepinephrine centrally, but you won't mitigate that. But in general, when you combine them, you don't see the extreme hypertension. And if an animal does become hypotensive, it seems okay to treat them with anticholinergics, which if you're just doing alpha-2s is generally not recommended and they do okay. And so recent study and abstracts been out and the papers in progress looked at an opioid with acepromazine and dexmedetomidine, both at very low doses, and then with and without an anticholinergic. And the, the ACE-DEX definitely does decrease cardiac output, similar to dexmedetomidine and an opioid. But if you add an anticholinergic, that seems to mitigate it. So, and we saw no arrhythmias with that. So, so a little bit different from what's in the past. And I think more to come, right? One, one study doesn't make or break everything. So I think more to come, but definitely something to consider. And we use lower doses and the animals seem quite sedate. And so it seems to be working well. Very cool. Very cool. And it's, it's so interesting as we're learning more about these. Do you mind sharing what the doses were in the study that they used? Yeah, let me just um, make sure I look them up. <laughs> because I um, So the dexmedetomidine dose was 2.5 micrograms per kilo. And the acepromazine dose was 5 micrograms per kilo. And those were given intramuscularly. 
Okay. Okay. I love that. Because one of the things with dexmedetomidine in my hands, sometimes I feel like I really struggle to strike that balance, even with an opioid combined. I'm like, either you're still like jumping around or you're like barely breathing. And I'm, I have a hard time working the middle there and getting that dose. So, but, but I love that dose of dexmedetomidine, two and a half mics per kg. And then combining that with the ACE and giving us the freedom to add that anticholinergic in if we need to could be a really exciting sedation protocol for our patients pending, you know, with, with this study and then, of course, pending whatever comes in the future. Yeah. So I think a little more work to be done. But I, yeah, definitely we use it clinically all the time now. So with, with usually hydromorphone or some other opioid. Yeah. And I saw it at Institute. We used it. The dogs did great. Their blood pressure was beautiful and they were super sedated. And, you know, you could have done whatever procedure you needed to do. It was very cool to see. So now we've got some excellent information about options for sedation and considerations when we're developing our protocol. Can we get into some specifics, some examples? And and I promise we won't hold you to any of this should this patient (laughs) walk into our hospital But something that I personally always find stressful is the idea of sedating a patient who's showing signs of respiratory distress or heart disease. But, you know, sometimes you just can't do anything unless we calm them down a little bit. What are some of the pre-sedation considerations to keep in mind and potential options for these patients? Yeah, and, and, you know, it's very broad to say respiratory and cardiac so respiratory runs the gamut from they have a pyothorax to they have laryngeal hemiplegia. And so I think it depends on, on which one you're faced with. But more important is to have the tools to, to help them as far as giving them oxygen, keeping them cool, those, those sorts of things. So I happen to like, if I have to give something injectable, really low doses of acepromazine in dogs with laryngeal hemiplegia or upper airway issues that are making them distressed. I think just calming them down a little bit helps them breathe slower and that then further calms them because they now get oxygen in and and they're, they're better. And of course, that may not be the best for their cardiovascular system. So, so if they're old and they have heart and respiratory disease, then another drug I might try is butorphanol, just a low dose to try to calm them down and also maybe have less cardiovascular side effects. Heart disease, a little bit, again, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in a cat is different from mitral regurgitation in a dog and, and how you manage those can be different. But in general, I think drugs like methadone, fentanyl, don't cause histamine release, are not overtly sedating. I mean, they sedate a little bit, but they're not hugely sedating, at least in our hands at, at, at the doses we use, and they don't cause vomiting. So those are drugs that, that we like to use both in airway dogs, so they don't cause vomiting, and also trying to sedate cardiac patients because they have good cardiovascular safety profile. Sometimes low doses of alfaxalone in cats that with an opioid, we, we tend not to use it a lot with dexmedetomidine because if we need dexmedetomidine, we usually don't need the alfaxalone. And if we need alfaxalone, we usually don't want to give the dexmedetomidine, but, but some people do use it that way. But low doses of alfaxalone, I think IM can be appropriate. 
some of the cats do get a little twitchy with that. So that's a balance with the lower doses that I think one needs to have. So I'm looking at drugs that cardiovascular safety is easier. Respiratory safety, I think, is is a little less easy because the drugs cause depression and you want calming, but not over sedation always. And the problem there is if you want to give something orally like trazodone or gabapentin, you often can't get it into them because they're so stressed in the hospital and you can't pill them because they're turning blue. And so, so that becomes a challenge. So that dog does better coming in with some of the oral sedatives coming into the clinic calmer than, than trying to do it on site. But, but those are all options to consider, I'd say. Thinking about Zen Alpha, this new medication that is coming out, is this an arena that we think it might have an application or not sure yet? No, it's a great question. So for those who aren't familiar with Zen Alpha, I've been lucky. I've had a little bit of a chance to work with it in dogs. And we did intravenous studies. So maybe the application's not quite the same. But what we found is that the combination really decreased the negative cardiovascular side effects of the primary drug alone. So dexmedetomidine was the the primary drug we used, and then we combined it with vadinoxan, which is the partial antagonist, peripheral, I should say peripheral antagonist. And so that returned cardiac output, heart rate, et cetera, more towards normal from giving the dexmedetomidine. So I'm actually very excited about this drug, that it may open up the opportunity to use alpha-2s in scenarios where we previously didn't, which was the cardiovascularly compromised patient. I think broad use will be what tells us whether that's true or not, but at least based on the literature and studies, that seems to be the case. Uh, The difference with the combination is that it's already in the bottle in a ratio. And so some animals may get a little more hypotensive with the combination ratio and and others may not. I think it'll be very manageable. They've already shown that you can treat it much the same with dopamine and, and, and dobutamine. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat excited about it. I can't wait to try it in, in some, some patients. So thanks for asking that question. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited too. I mean, any additional options we can have for safe sedation protocols in our patient, I'll take them. Yeah, I think it'll be a little different, a little bit shorter duration than equivalent dose because of the partial antagonism speeds up the clearance. Some of those things that we'll have to learn, right? But but we've had to do that with every new drug that's come on, on the market. So I, I think um, shows promise. Yes. I remember it like when I first started my foray into veterinary medicine, I was a veterinary assistant. I was, my title was technician, but I'm in Florida and we don't require credentialing. So I was not credentialed, but I worked in the anesthesia and analgesia department at the University of Florida. And that was like, I feel like propofol had just come out and like metatomidine had just gone to dexmedetomidine and all this stuff. And you know, we've those drugs have become very commonplace and widely used and a lot of comfort level. And it was really exciting when we when we got those and we were able to use them. So hopefully this will do something similar and open up this whole new realm of possibilities. Everything has its pros and cons, but I, yeah, I think it'll give us some options where we didn't have them before. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And of course, despite our best efforts, our best education in using these drugs correctly, sometimes things just don't go as planned. And that kind of brings up the importance of close monitoring for all of our patients, which we touched on a little bit earlier with our our sedated pup at Institute. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of monitoring, even in our patients who are sedated and not anesthetized? Yeah, I think that dog at Institute was a great example. It got doses that we would give every day in our hospitals, right? And it totally flattened that dog within minutes. And that was not expected. If nobody had been watching that dog, even for just level of sedation, that dog might have continued to deteriorate. And, and we wouldn't have picked it up because often you sedate and you walk away for 15 minutes and then come back and check on the dog. And this happened within, I think, about seven minutes. So that that's definitely just observing them, having somebody observe them. The other things that, of course, were set up there was we had the anesthesia machine. We had the ability to intubate them. We had the ability to catheterize them and people with the skills to do that while you also got on a pulse oximeter and blood pressure monitor to say, did the sedation itself cause other negative effects? Did he just profoundly react and is quiet or sedate? Or did it also drop his blood pressure? Did it also drop his heart rate significantly? Is he also hypoxemic? Is he breathing? So I think monitoring for that, it doesn't have to always be invasive. You can feel a pulse. You can look at mucous membranes. You can count respiration and heart rate and sculpt them. And, and I think you could do that for some of the routine healthy sedations. And then when you get into the more compromised animals or ones you're more worried about, I think it is nice to have pulse oximetry, maybe a Doppler where you can hear the heartbeat and, and also get a pressure or a non-invasive cuff. They don't take long to put on. And I think you can get good information that allows you to decide, okay, I'm either gonna quit now and, and maybe reverse the dog because we've got what we need or it's enough or I'm going to support them through it. So I'm going to put a catheter and give them fluids or I'm going to intubate them and get them on oxygen and breathe for them. So I think it's that piece that is probably the most critical. We focus on drug selection and we focus on how much and, you know, finesse that. But I think it's actually watching them and monitoring them that gets us the furthest. Absolutely. And that opens up a whole nother conversation, which I would love to have about, you know, what effects did the sedation have? Do we treat with adipamazole? Do we talk fluid boluses and anticholinergics? But I know that's probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about here today. But either way, Dr. Mama, I'm so happy that you joined me on the podcast. Great information. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with everybody? Don't, I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, it's looking at an individual patient, trying to decide what's best for them um, in the circumstance that you're working in. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you again for joining me. It's been fantastic. Thank you. And thanks for coming to the Institute. All right. Wonderful. I hope you all got a lot out of that episode. I know I did. Thank you so much, Dr. Mama, for offering your insight and a big thank you to DECRA for making this episode possible. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. 
As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.